Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back. Uh, this is episode four of Cockless Crusaders. And I don't know how many of you guys who've been watching might have noticed, but we've been trying to put around an episode every three weeks, every Tuesday. Um, I've heard that one of the biggest um, tips to starting a podcast, one of the most important things is actually consistency. So we've been trying to keep that short of at a three-week cadence, uh, which sort of works with both of our schedules and trying to put out content for you guys um, on a regular basis. But last week would have been our three weeks, it's our last episode of Kishalei, but we were not able to put on an episode. Um, just a quick explanation why. That's because both me, well, I was at the AAS conference. Um, so that's, for those of you that don't know, it's a, one of the biggest conferences um, that happens biannually every year, um, held by the American Astronomical Society, where a lot of astronomers businesses come together just to talk about research, give presentations. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of fun. So I was there. Simi was also in the LA area. So it was in Pasadena. We were going to do an in-person episode, but the logistics just didn't end up working out. But um, all that being said, we were able to get one done really quickly this week um, with L, who is part of my cohort at UND and another one of my good friends. And um, yeah, so we will get into our interview with L and sort of our thoughts on our interview before we get into the actual interview in a little bit. But um, just a little bit about how AAS was uh, for me personally, I was able to give my first research talk at AAS, which was really cool. Um, I thought that I, I think I did well. Hopefully others, others thought so as well. And people got a lot out of uh, my talk, which is only a five minute talk um, and three minutes for questions. But I got a really, lot of really interesting questions and I met a lot of really cool people and talked about some really cool science. So yeah, I was very humbled to have the opportunity to give my first talk there. And I thought that it went well, which was really cool. And it was overall a great conference. So yeah, that's just a little bit about what I've been on uh, the past month or so. Um, but yeah, so that was all really cool. But now sort of getting into our thoughts on Elle's interview. So Simi, what did you think? Well, first of all, congrats again. I know the talk went super well and I'm very happy for you. Um, but we were super lucky to have Elle on this episode. Um, we kind of wanted to do something for Pride Month um, and Elle was super awesome. They were our first queer and trans person on the podcast and it was just a super interesting conversation that we had with them. I think both Gok and I learned a lot um, and we got a new perspective that we haven't really seen before. So everything that Elle talked about was super insightful. But I think like one of the biggest takeaways that I had from our conversation is just that like, I mean, I don't know if everyone knows this, but I'm starting law school in the fall. And we talked a lot about how Elle came to be in this position of their career. And after taking a four year gap from undergrad and grad school I learned that like networking is really like the best thing that you can do to kind of put yourself out there and like shoot your shot basically um like a lot of things are not going to be handed to you and job opportunities are not just going to present themselves so Elle's story was super inspiring um they talk about how it's pretty like similar to what the American dream really is because Elle started off flipping PowerPoint presentation slides at NASA 
and then they became a mission design strategist just by like simply following people around and asking them if there was anything that they could help out with and I just thought that was super awesome and I'm definitely gonna do the same thing once I start law school um I know that really putting yourself out there is the best thing that you can do and opening doors for yourself and creating this pathway that like Elle was fortunate enough to have um and after all that work that they did at NASA they were still able to pursue like grad school and I just thought that was super awesome um and I'm sure Gok has many other takeaways that he would like to talk about no yeah that's definitely one of my big takeaways as well um I didn't know that um, that was about that about like Elle's story, even though they sit like <laughs> five feet across from me every single day when I go to school. Um, so that was really interesting to hear about. And yeah, I thought it was really telling that Elle also prefaced a lot of this by talking about, by recognizing that they were, were already in a privileged position to be able to sort of go out on a limb and take a risk when it comes to sort of chasing their passions and dreams. And Hopefully, as time goes on, we'll be in a better space in, as a community to make sure that everyone has these sorts of opportunities, not those sort of with the privilege um, to sort of take these risks to succeed in this field. But yeah, so that was one thing that I thought was really interesting. And another part of the interview that I thought was really interesting um, and really insightful was when Elle talked about their experiences being queer in the field and easy steps that we as a community can take to make the field more inclusive to people of all genders and sexualities and to make it a more welcoming place. And I think that the easy steps that they sort of just talked about is something that everyone in the community should do. Um, they talked about just including your pronouns, if you're comfortable with it, um, in all your emails, um, which is something that is very, very easy that all of us can start doing right away, just adding it as a sign on to your email, done, easy. And that already goes a really long way. Um, which is something that I definitely will be doing now. Um, and I think that a lot of other things um, can be done. And I'll, we talk about some more in the interview, but yeah, that was another thing that I thought was really interesting um, and really insightful. And I was really happy to hear Elle's point of view on these things so that I can be a better ally to the community as well. So yeah, so I thought that it was a really amazing interview. Um, so yeah, we'll just get right into it now. So thanks for listening. Wait, I have one more thing I want to say. I just wanted to say that Gok and I are very lucky to sort of have this platform to have these important conversations um, about gender and sexuality and, and things that people are not often super comfortable talking about um, for whatever reason. But um, we're grateful that Elle really gave us insight that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise um, and I just think that another really important takeaway that both of us got were, was that with intersectional identities, um, it's very important to realize that it's not just about like checking boxes, like people sometimes don't fit into certain categories that we have normalized and a big step into inclusivity is to sort of add more boxes or take away the concept of these boxes in general. Um, so something to keep in mind is if you are in a place where you're 
creating surveys or applications for people trying to join your program or institution, try and include everyone, try and include people of all genders and races. So if that means adding male, female, non-binary, trans, other, or just letting people fill it out themselves instead of checking out categories, um, that could go a very long way because everyone is unique and everyone has different parts that they would like to share. And I just thought that was really great of Elle to point out um, because those are things that a lot of people don't have to think about. Um, but yeah, thank you guys again. We're really, really, really excited for this episode and we hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we did. We're very excited to have my friend and also part of my cohort at UMD, um, Al Bogue on the show. Um, thank you so much for coming on, our fourth guest. We are very excited. Um, Al is a second year PhD student at the astronomy department at the University of Maryland. They got a bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy from UT, from UT Austin, and they worked for NASA four years prior to graduate school. They are part of the queer and trans community. Um, they use they, them pronouns. And we're, again, we're incredibly excited to have Elle on the show. So welcome. Thanks thank again. you. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Um, we're just going to get started by talking a little bit about your research. So could you describe like what you're working on right now for your second year project at UMD? Sure. Um, so I am sort of a, a planet hunter, planet photographer, I guess you could say. Uh, I look for exoplanets, which is any planet orbiting a star other than the sun. So we know that almost every star likely has planets, and the more we can learn about them, the more we can understand how planets form and how planetary systems like our own evolved. Um, and there are a lot of different ways to look for exoplanets. Most of them are indirect. So what you're actually doing is observing the star that you think has planets and looking for signals either in the apparent brightness of the star or the motion of the star to look for evidence that there's a planet nearby. Uh, but what I'm doing is trying to take direct images of planets orbiting other stars. And the best way to describe how difficult this is is to imagine that the star you're looking for is like a lighthouse, like a huge lighthouse bulb, right? And hovering a few feet away from it is a single cell of bioluminescent algae, right? And that brightness of that single cell relative to the brightness of your lighthouse, that's like the relative brightnesses of the planet and the star. Um, in addition, the, the lighthouse and the cell are in the middle of New York City, surrounded by dust and smog and all kinds of junk. And you are trying to take a picture of it while standing in LA. So that's like the distance that, that we're talking about. Um, so you're trying to battle these, these two challenges of the fact that the, the image you're trying, the object you're trying to image is the very dim one next to the very bright one. So you're trying to get an image of this dim object without totally like obscuring the entire image with the brightness of the star and also the fact that they're very far away and very close together um so far away from us and then close to each other right and that's just resolving them as two separate objects by itself 
is really difficult. Um, so what I'm doing is looking at data that will very shortly be coming down from the freshly launched James Webb Space Telescope. Um, it has a special instrument on it called a coronagraph, which uses a, a mask essentially in, in the optical path of the telescope. So light comes in you know, through the, the main channel, it bounces off that big hexagonal primary mirror. Um, and then as it travels through the inside of the telescope, in the path of the light, there's like a circular mask that blocks out the light from the host star. And it's specially like tinted and apodized and whatnot to prevent light from the star from like diffracting around the edge of the mask. Uh, and that allows you to image really dim objects that are, you know, a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million times dimmer than the star itself. Um, and what we're doing with it is we're just sort of going to point it at stuff and see what we see. Um, see if we can find any new planets. And if we do find new planets, try to characterize them and understand, you know, how they formed and how they got to where they are, and then tie that back to what we know generally about, about planet formation. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, I definitely think that exoplanets are pretty interesting now, especially after a class we just took. Um, never never had any experience in working with them before but i think that definitely that definitely changed my perspective on them so that sounds really amazing al um i was interested personally in sort of why you're interested in planetary system evolution in particular rather than maybe discovering exoplanets or characterizing their atmospheric features or other branches of like exoplanet science that are out there so what about like planetary system evolution in particular interests you I think part of it is that no matter how much data you have about what's happening, like, okay, cool, we have 4,000 planets that are just sort of around that we know about. Um, but it is the, the physics that connects all of them that's really interesting to me because they all formed theoretically from the same from the same types of mechanisms the same types of physical processes and the fact that the same fundamental laws of physics can result in this like wide menagerie of different planetary system architectures different you get really hot jupiters you've got cold tiny dwarf planets you've got i mean you've got everything um and so i think yeah part of it is is the understanding the fundamental process that's driving everything that we see um and coming up with the reasons for why we're detecting these planets or finding whatever molecules it is that's in them um another aspect is that the formation process is what allows us to use these planets we're discovering to then learn something about ourselves right? Because the same formation process should apply to our own solar system. Um, and one of the reasons why that's really interesting is because it is actually tied with the study of how life evolved. Um, we know that there are certain chemicals, uh, certain elements that need to be present in order for prebiotic chemistry to start churning and start making these 
these fundamental amino acids and things that we need for the type of life that evolved on Earth. But we don't necessarily know how all those elements ended up on the surface of Earth in a form that allowed life to be able to evolve. And so one of the things that you get to learn about when you're studying planetary system formation is how those elements, various elements, get transported around the disk and end up in different places in the planetary system. Um, and so it can help us answer questions like, why is there life on Earth, but maybe not on Mars or Venus and things like that. And which is, you know, that's one of the like deep fundamental questions of humanity is like, why are we here? So that's kind of, you get to connect it to that too. That's super interesting. I never would have thought like the connection between biology and exoplanets, but yeah, that's super important. Um, I'm just trying to understand a little bit more about like how you take these photos. I know you explained that you used that mask mechanism on the telescope, but could you take these photos before um, the JS or JWST telescope was like around? I know it's super new. Um, and like, how exactly do you do it? Like scientifically, logistically, do you, do you need to be a part of like the telescope collaboration? Can you use their images? <laughs> Could you just explain a little more about all that? Sure. Um, so James Webb Space Telescope is not the first observatory that will be able to take these images. We've actually been able to take direct images with Hubble, another space telescope, but we can also take them from the ground. There are a number of ground-based observatories that are able to, to resolve planets from stars. Uh, what you get with every new telescope is more sensitivity which allows you to discover um, and image smaller and smaller planets. So the first planets that were observed from the ground were huge, like 10 times bigger than Jupiter, and also so young and fresh that they were still glowing hot from the heat of having just formed, right? So as we, as we move towards these more and more sensitive observatories, we can start to look at older planets, we can look at smaller like terrestrial planets uh, with the ultimate goal, you know, being trying to directly image a planet like Earth, right? Um, and so that's what some of the 10 years down the line future observatories are being designed to do. As for logistically, scientifically, how we get the images, um, whew, it's, let me think about how to, how to approach this um, because the, the technology that you need is really very, very finely tuned for this one specific purpose. Um, and there are only a few instruments right around the world and in space that can do it. But to be able to use data and to be able to request, you know, observations of a particular star that you're interested in, you don't necessarily have to be involved with that telescope itself. Um, the observatories generally will have a system in place such that anybody can request time, can apply for time on the observatory. Um, and, you know, it helps if you're part of an academic institution or research institution that knows how to write these proposals in the best way to actually get them um, to, to win them and to be able to get time on the telescopes. But you don't have to be like a NASA scientist. 
or anything. Um, yeah, did I, did I miss any bits? No, that was perfect. Thank you. That was super helpful. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, your research is really cool. And I'm excited to talk more about you in the future about your second year project as next year goes on. Um, I'm excited to see the work that you're going to do. So now moving a little into your background and sort of how you got here. Um, we were wondering, when did you know that you wanted to study space? That's a fun one, um, because I went through the space phase as a, as a little kid. I told my mom I was going to find aliens or something when I was eight. And, and I would tell people when I grew up, I wanted to be an astronomer. And they assumed that I meant astronaut. And I was like, no, I want to be an astronomer specifically. Thank you. Um, and but I also was like a very, it's a very creative kid. I like to draw and paint. And as I went through high school, I was like, okay, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna be a, I'm, I'm gonna be a theater set designer specifically. That's what I want to do. Um, and then I, and then I relaxed. And I was like, okay, maybe illustrator is probably more applicable to general, you know, things. Um, and I was. I was halfway through applying to the University of Texas near where I grew up um, to their studio art program. And I had math as my backup like major that I wanted to do. Uh, Cause I was like, math is cool. I like it. I'm pretty, I'm pretty okay at it. Uh, and then I, I think it was around then that I, that I stumbled across the, the upgrade the, the revamp of the Cosmos uh, TV series. And I was like, ah, damn, I guess I have to do that with my life. Um, it was pretty, it was, yeah, it was pretty like a switch flipped where I was like, if I am, even if I were equally, equally passionate about both physics and art, it's a lot easier to be able to keep doing art for myself, you know, and as, as a hobby and as a passion and have physics as a career, as opposed to doing it the opposite way around, not as feasible. So I got, I, I went with the approach that would give me the best of both worlds. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a winding path. Um, and then once I was in physics, it just became clear that astronomers were generally chiller than physicists. That's the best way I can describe it. Like the culture is more relaxed um, in a way that I think is good for my mental health. Wow, that's that's super cool. Uh, I knew that you were interested in art a lot, but I didn't know that you were actually going to pursue it as like a career before. That's super interesting. I don't think that there's a lot of astronomers that could say that, uh, so that's really cool. Um, and I was wondering, um, getting into your time at UT Austin, what was the culture of the astronomy and physics department like there? And how are your experiences there academically during your undergraduate years? Um, yeah, I so I was a double major as an undergrad because the physics and astronomy departments were separate, uh, but doing both at the same time really just added a couple of courses to doing one individually. Um, and in undergrad, I, I, 
I didn't really feel like I was part of the department in the way that I feel like I am as a grad student. Um, you know, professors are scary, grad students are intimidating. You're just trying to like keep your head down and get through it, you know, as an undergrad. So the and I and I did I did pretty well. So the fact that especially the physics classes tended to be quite competitive. Um, and, but it didn't stress me out too much because I usually came out okay in the curve at the end of things. Uh, I did have my like, my classic undergrad emotional breakdown, right? Um, because in, in part because I developed like your early twenties is when any latent mental health shenanigans kind of start to happen, right? So I developed panic disorder, which was super fun uh, and fully like would black out in class occasionally. Um, that was cool, but, and yeah, I, and it was another one of those things where you just, you just know it's gonna be over soon and you just keep going. And that was kind of my approach to undergrad. Um, and the, similarly like the community among the students themselves especially in astronomy was really mutually supportive so between my housemates and my close friends that i had met like they were really the people that that got me through undergrad because uh, it by the end of it especially it really felt i mean i was burnt out completely completely burnt out decided because of that not to go to grad school immediately um, and instead do basically anything else that was remotely space related was kind of my plan. Um, and here we are. Yeah, that, that sounds like a journey. Um, I'm really glad that you weren't alone. You were able to find a sort of community that supported you throughout these mental health struggles. Um, did the school, did you use any like school related resources for mental wellness and like bouncing off of that like were you able <laughs> were you able to find like a community of like queer people where you could sort of get support on that aspect of your identity during your time at UT um so i did i did attempt to make use of some uh university provided like mental health care type stuff they um, I was able to see a counselor on campus there for like 10 bucks a session right which is affordable for an undergrad um, but the quality of that care was disappointing I would say um, in terms of like we would kind of talk and, and try, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out why I was having panic attacks at all, um, rather than coming up with strategies to like cope and get through them. Um, and I remember at one point I asked my therapist, like, do you have any strategies for like what I should do if I, like if I feel a panic attack coming on like what what can I do to make it easier or better or just like not to freak out as much uh and he was like 
that's a good question. Let me see if I, and I was like, this isn't something you just have on hand as a therapist who like, are you serious? Um, so that was stressful, but, but there was actually, there was a really, there was a really great queer community um, on campus. There was a, a very active, like, gender and sexuality like center sort of where there's just like spaces that were designed for queer people to hang out and meet each other in and there were lots of events and Austin as a city is also a really chill place to be for for a lot of like gender and sexual minorities um so that was great and the and the, the community that I developed from like the people I met in the dorms and the people I met through the various like queer events on campus uh, are still like some of my best friends. Yeah, that's really good to hear. Um, yeah, very glad that you're able to have a community supported you. Um, and mental health, especially during undergrad, I think services are not the best uh, in this country. Uh, so yeah, that's something that's definitely that we need to fix. Um, so now transitioning a little bit into your gap years, um, how exactly did you get your first job at NASA headquarters? Uh, I know that you were a mission design strategist. Um, so what exactly does that entail? That sounds very cool. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, this is, so the way I got that job, plain and simple, was networking essentially as much as that is obnoxious to hear um it i knew somebody who knew i was looking for a job and he happened to be at nasa headquarters um and heard about a job opening and thought of me and reached out um to be fair the first job the the one that that i was reached out to about was not science related uh or space exploration related the first job at nasa headquarters which was the one that got me in the door was 10 hours a week flipping powerpoint slides during uh nasa council meetings <laughs> that was what i did and i and i had to be like in order to be able to take a job like that where in order to be able to move across the country for a job that was only 10 hours a week in a city with a very high cost of living like I have to recognize that I was only able to do that because of like the various privileges that I've experienced in my life and I know that there are a lot of people who wouldn't be able to take a leap of faith like that and know that they would figure it out and make it through um so I just want to like mention that um but because of the fact that I was to do that um I, you know, took this job at at least me in the door and then hung out essentially on the science floor during my lunch breaks and bothered everybody uh, uh, about what science they were working on, what they were doing, did they need help, how can I help, please let me help, can I help, please, uh, is essentially how it went. And by the end of that first summer, I had interned with um, 
a few different people uh, working on like some data science things and working on this Mars exploration strategy thing, which essentially um, was the the goal of that team, which is the the Mars reconnaissance team is what it's called now, uh, which I helped name, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, what they do is answer the science questions that we need to have a handle on in order to be prepared to send people to Mars and get them back safely. Um, and so these are questions like, what is the distribution of water ice underground on Mars? What is the regolith like? So what is what is the rock made of and is it poisonous? Uh, things like that so that we can we can have a human mission to Mars and a a long-term sustainable presence there, similar to like the International Space Station. So we're not talking about colonization, we're talking about like permanent research infrastructure that could be tended by crews rotating in and out. Um, and that work, uh, that the internship with them turned into a full-time job with them eventually. And I stayed there for a couple of years uh, before switching to um, the like exoplanet work that I do now, which I still, uh, did as a research post-baccalaureate research scientist at NASA Goddard after I was at headquarters for a while. Wow, that sounds really cool. That's definitely a very like, uh, I don't know, it's cool that you ended up working just like that 10 hour, those 10 hour shifts, just like flipping PowerPoint slides and it became like a actual like science yeah. position. That's definitely, that's definitely a huge leap of faith. That very you early. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, the, it's like, it's like the American dream of like what you want to be, you want anyone to be able to do this, right? And the, it's the idea of like, yeah, getting your foot in the door and working from the ground up. And uh, I, I kind of got to, to experience that, which is really special, but also like I have, to, I have to couch that in knowing that a lot of like privilege that I have went into me being able to do that. Um, and my hope is that like, there will be more, more opportunities that are more financially feasible, more like well-paid internships available and things like that to make those kinds of opportunities more accessible to everybody. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's very cognizant of you to recognize that fact. And hopefully in the future, there'll be opportunities for anyone of any background to be able to get positions like that and move on. Um, so I know you mentioned that you ended up becoming a post-bac researcher at Goddard. So how did you make that transition? How did you end up going from being like a mission design strategist to working on exoplanets at Goddard, which is not far from NASA headquarters, but still a move, so. Right, yeah. And once again, the answer is networking. Uh, I, as I, you know, met scientists at Goddard, whenever I realized the person I was talking to had a job that I wanted, uh, not that I wanted to take their job, but like if they were doing work that I was interested in, if they were on a career path that I was really curious about um, and wanted to take part in, I, I would ask them how, you know, how did they get to be doing that? And do you know, and do, do you need help <laughs> with the things you're doing? Um, and so I was, I was on a work trip from headquarters um, 
visiting Houston for some meetings at the Johnson Space Center, which is like where mission control is. And I got to go into mission control and like see everything. That was super cool. Um, and it turned out there were a bunch of exoplanet researchers also in town for a conference at the time and went out bowling with a bunch of them and was talking to them about how, yeah, like I'm doing this really cool stuff, but I want to get back into research soon. And they were like, oh, well, you should come work with us. And like, there's this job posting out and you should apply. And, and I did. And, uh, and that was how I ended up doing exoplanet science at Goddard, which luckily I'm super into um, because I've done, did a lot of research throughout undergrad that I was not into, which is important, right? To learn about what kinds of research, what topics, what styles of research are not good for you is just as important as learning about the ones that are. Um, so yeah, so I'm still doing it. That's awesome. Yeah, no, networking is super important. Um, you you spent quite a bit of time at NASA. And like, I just want to know a little bit more about your personal experience there, like, as a queer person, as a trans person, like, do you feel like the greater, older scientific community kind of accepted that side of your identity? And like, did you feel supported by them? Uh it was it was pretty touch and go i'll be honest there were some people i worked with who were extremely supportive um which and and to be clear i actually i i came out as non-binary while i was working at nasa headquarters um so i had to show up to my boss and say hello sir um can you actually completely change the way that you think of me as a person? Can you change what name you call me and what pronouns you call me? And potentially have to have a bunch of sort of awkward conversations with all of our collaborators until everybody figures this out. Uh, which, kind of a big ask, it feels like. Um, hopefully we're moving as a society towards a place where that's not as big of a deal anymore but yeah it it can feel a little bit like you're uprooting your whole career which it's not it's not and it's you know if if you're listening to this and you're like thinking about whether or not you should come out go for it if you can if you want to um because it'll feel better afterwards trust me um but when i so when i came out at headquarters there some of my Coworkers, some of my collaborators, general office mates were awesome, incredible, super supportive, um, excited about like me being able to be myself. Um, but I also had people who uh, refused to use my name at all ever because they were flustered and confused. I had people who actively discouraged other people from using my pronouns. Um, and the fact that like, I, I am glad that I had enough folks around who like were supportive that it averaged out to being okay. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a whole thing. Um, and, and it's certainly true that the, the younger 
populations of folks in the in the newer generations generally more up to speed which is great um but yeah it was not it was not entirely without struggle as as with a lot of things in life <laughs> um but i'm glad that there were people that kind of supported you throughout that and that must have been like an entire experience i hope that like over time it got a little bit better and easier to navigate um uh it did yeah i mean like things uh, yeah generally things got easier also part of it was me like learning how to ex to have reasonable expectations for people you know and and not assuming or requiring like certain levels of uh pronoun aptitude from folks who probably just aren't equipped with the tools to do that um but yeah still will fight about gender neutral bathrooms i will fight about that every every day yes as we all should so i mean i know you mentioned the age difference like with how people reacted to your coming out how does it feel like as a i guess not older grad student but like you're a second year and Gok's a second year there's kind of a little age gap there so what was it like taking such a long break between your undergrad and graduate studies it was awesome uh yeah I I'm really really glad that I did it in part because of of how burnt out I was at the end of undergrad I knew that I could not handle handle taking one more physics class I just was not it was not in the cards for me at the time and i'm really glad that i was able to listen to what my brain needed and respond to that and give it the break from hardcore academic study that it needed and go do like vague science communication stuff and and get that all the science that's happening at nasa like you get the overview of all of it at headquarters um and so i was able to to take take a distance um survey of like oh what are all maybe i want to work on this maybe i want to work on this someday like i don't know um and just and get to in a less academically stressful environment um peruse for lack of a better word um the other thing that taking that gap from school gave me was a really decent sense of how i how i work well in terms of like what my pattern of productivity is when i can expect certain levels of productive output for myself and when i can't um it gave me a really good sense of what i need to do in order to achieve what work life balance is for me so i have approached grad school so far in a extremely rigid 9 to 5 scenario i don't work at night i don't work on the weekends unless i'm coming up on a very specific important deadline um and just that has helped me so much to not feel like any evening i take off to myself i am wasting time when i should be studying or doing homework or working on my research like i have none of that after 6 p.m 
is me time and nothing can take that away from me. Uh, and that, that has been extremely <laughs> empowering. Um, yeah, I think those are probably the main outcomes. Yeah, that, that's, that's really good to hear. Um, yeah, I, I guess I had a very different experience than you because I came straight out of undergrad. So I definitely don't have that same work-life balance thing figured out like you do, but hopefully over time, I'll get there as well. Um, so now getting into um, your time at UMD. So what was the grad admissions process like for you and how did you end up choosing UMD? The admissions process, um... Well, one, I applied to UMD because I knew they didn't require the physics GRE. I didn't want to take the physics GRE. So I only applied to schools that didn't require the physics GRE. That was very simple. Um, but I was also excited about it because of its close ties to the Goddard Space Flight Center, where I had been working already. Um, and the idea that I would be able to continue doing NASA research as a grad student, uh, which I can do now. I'm actually, I'm in my office at NASA right now. Um, and the, so the admissions process was uh, your, your kind of standard, you come up with your CV, you write your statement of purpose, which is like what kind of research you wanna do and why, and why you think you're prepared to do it. And that statement is largely uh, thought to be like, pretty much the most important part of your application, right? It's where you really get to show that you know what you're talking about, that you're excited about the work. Um, and even if you don't know exactly what you wanna do, just demonstrate that like you are interested and you have done your homework um, on, on getting ready for being a grad student in general. And I really think that the best decision I made in terms of preparing this statement was getting as many people as I could who I thought would be helpful to read it and help me work on it. And so I reached out to my old um, astronomy like advisor from UT who actually served on the graduate admissions committee and so you know would know what kinds of things to look for in general and also knew something about my background i also reached out to people at umd um, the school to which i was applying who were not on the graduate admissions committee committee but were maybe staff scientists um, and not professors who could help me tailor it to the institution specifically and um, and really like make sure that everything flowed correctly and I wasn't assuming things about the university that weren't true or whatever. Um, and so really like making use of the expertise that surrounds you when it comes to applying to a particular school, I think is probably a big reason why I got in. Um, as for choosing UMD, uh, UMD is the only school I got into, so I didn't have to make a choice. Uh, and so that was, that was the easy part. Yeah, I mean, that does make it easier than having to go to, through like a stressful decisions process. Um, but I'm glad that it ended up working that way for you. So um, just a little bit more about what your kind of 
doing now that you're at UMD. Can you tell us a little more about like the Better Astronomy for New Generation seminar, the Bang seminar? Um, I heard you're one of the main organizers, so that's super awesome. What are like some of the main goals that you're trying to achieve? So the main goal is kind of right there in the name. It's Better Astronomy for the Next Generation. It is trying to uh, continually work on improving the culture in the department and in the field um, so that anybody who is interested in astronomy feels welcome and feels empowered to take part. It is also um, providing resources for current students and current early career folks to get whatever additional information they might need. So to get to be specific, right? We have talks um, talks about mental health. We have talks about understanding um, like communication skills from a how do you communicate science to the public versus how do you be a good colleague to you know the people that you work with? Um, we also have we've had talks um, and kind of almost like mini workshops that are how do you write a proposal for a grant? How do you propose for telescope time? How do you um, like we could have CV workshops or um, and kinds of general skills that don't tend to get covered in your classes, but are things that you need to know in order to be a, success, a successful research scientist in any capacity. Um, and then we also have folks come in who are astronomers who have moved into, into industry, into data science. Um, one of the big skills that is probably one of the most transferable skill that astronomers tend to get is software development, it's coding. These are things that like every, um, pretty much every field can benefit from. Um, so it's great that we get to do that as astronomers. But because again, in astronomy classes, we're learning astronomy, we're not usually learning software development and yet it is so critical to so much research. Um, so we try to like make sure that that is, is available as well. Um, that's That's what, that's what it does. It's been really great to be able to be a part of it and to help facilitate those discussions that our department and every department needs. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Bang has been awesome. Um, our first year that we were there, um, I tried to go to as many as I could and I definitely got a lot out of every single one I went to. So thank you so much for putting so much effort into it. You and Katya have done a great job. Um, so yeah, now sort of um, building off that, I was wondering how do you feel like we can make our department at UMD a more healthier and gender inclusive space? Uh, gender neutral bathrooms, definitely the first thing that comes to my mind. Uh, but I was thinking, I was wanted to know about what you think about sort of the state of our department when it comes to um, that sense and how we can make it healthier. Um. So there are a couple of there are a couple of things that like anyone can do everywhere uh, that that I think help a lot. Um, gender neutral, like creating gender neutral bathrooms, 
can be tough sometimes because you already have bathrooms with like an infrastructure thing. We did actually just redo all of the bathrooms in uh, the Atlantic building and they are all now like single occupancy, gender neutral bathrooms, which is beautiful. I'm so excited. Um, but in terms of things that everyone can do for free um, is include, like encourage your colleagues to include your pronouns in your email signatures um, and encourage colleagues to introduce themselves with their pronouns. Uh, this is not only really beneficial for trans and non-binary folks, uh, but also in emails for, for people who have names that are not like common English names, right? It is frequent to not, to read a name and not necessarily know the gender of the person that you're talking to. So in that situation, including your pronouns preemptively eases a lot of that like uncertainty. Um, there, so like pronouns is probably the biggest, simplest, cheapest solution, not solution, but, but step that you can take. Um, and that doesn't mean requiring everybody to like announce their pronouns or include them in their email signature uh, because especially like some folks might not be ready to come out yet or are like for for any number of reasons uncomfortable sharing that um, and that's fine too but creating a space where that expression is not only accepted but encouraged um, is really really helpful uh, so that's yeah, if I did say like one thing, just everybody scream your pronouns into the wind. Just tell everybody what they are and ask what other people's pronouns are when you meet them. Yeah, that seems pretty straightforward, easy and, and voluntary things that we can all do. Um, so just like moving on to dive a little deeper into this. Um, how do you feel about like the diversity committees that grad schools and institutions have? I feel like, like to my understanding, most of them are focused on race. Um, do you feel like they do a good job of including gender and sexuality in their focuses and their mission statements and stuff? And if not, like, how do you think that the astronomy field and physics community in general can start looking at like the LGBTQ community as a focus in their EDI emissions? Mm -hmm. That's a big, um, that's a big question, right? And not one that I have the end all be all answer to. But uh, I do think that EDI committees in general do a good job of including uh, gender and sexual minorities in their like mission statements right? Like we know this is a thing that is taking place. Um, and in the case specifically of like it, it, one of the reasons that it can be trickier to, to discuss and to like study is because it's not necessarily going to be as visible upfront of an identity. Um, that's not necessarily the case for non-binary people um, for various, well, I can't, but I, you know, you can't generalize for any of it. Um, and so 
yeah um i'm not i'm not entirely sure like what what the best thing is going to be to do to fix everything right but it's the more we can identify like small actionable steps that are not difficult to achieve um i think the better we can like keep keep inching things in the right direction um and i think again that that one of the best things that we can do is to be vocal and keep talking about it so that bringing up topics that are about gender that are about like lgbt issues are not a taboo like it's not weird you know <laughs> it's fine uh and and the more we can normalize those conversations the the better i think um i feel like there was a second part to your question and i don't remember what it was no that's okay i think i think you covered all of it it was a pretty okay. wide variety of things in the question but we're, we're good <laughs> yeah so that is that is helpful to hear for me especially as a member of the adi community community at umd um yeah definitely not one person has the answer to everything and i feel like everyone at e in edi has sort of their own focus on what they want to focus on so it's very hard to encompass sort of all of the issues that are going on but keeping every single community in mind like you said and taking small actionable steps um which is sort of what i thought of doing with this podcast it's like a small actionable step that we could do to sort of make the community a better place so thinking of it in that sense rather than fixing like an entire problem um which is pretty daunting is definitely something that EDI communities in general should sort of look at things like I think um so yeah so now moving on to your future um how do you envision your perfect career path going sort of over the next 10 years like do you want to go into academia do you want to become a research scientist do you want to go into industry so what are sort of you envisioning for yourself right now um my plan is definitely in the direction of research scientist so not necessarily tenure track faculty but not industry either something something in the middle um and i say that with a huge grain of salt uh, because i think part of the reason that i have ended up in positions that i'm really excited about is because i have been willing and able to like take windows of opportunity when i find them um and so from that perspective i'll do kind of whatever if 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 a really interesting problem opens up and there's an opportunity for me to work on it i'll go for it if suddenly i am overwhelmed with the desire to become a botanist i probably will um and yeah i'm just kind of going with the flow really as for the like at the bottom line is like yeah we're just we're just here to see what's what's fun if astronomy stops being fun i'm going to stop doing it that's it <laughs> but it's really fun and i anticipated being fun for a long time uh so yeah probably research science whatever problems are are happening that are cool that uh that somebody lets me work on i'll work on and we'll just see what happens that's awesome i really respect 
like how much of a go-getter you are um it's super admiring or admirable sorry um I just wanted to touch base a little bit about how you talked about earlier that like you have the sort of privilege to to be this kind of go-getter person who can like take opportunities that a lot of other people can't like as a white person in the field but also a person who has a different gender identity and a different sexual orientation than the majority like how does the privilege sort of like cross cancel um have you had any like things that have been taken away once you came out or I don't know just any anything you can any input you can give on that um yeah that's a really good really good question and um it's and I'm really glad that studies of the experience of folks with different and with intersecting minority identities like gets more and more attention um it and it's one that I am particularly cognizant of because I my family is mixed so my dad is not white um, and my little brother is like visibly a mixed race person and I turned out so light-skinned with soft smooth hair and so I'm the only one of the three of us that experiences the the white privilege and have my entire life um, and so it's something that I'm extremely aware of and don't always know how to how to talk about necessarily because like I am I'm not a purely like Anglo-Saxon whatever um, but I also know that I do experience white privilege and have my entire life um, so there have been um, what what that results in is like on on the face of things you know i am i am treated as as part of that particular majority um but there have been times uh where like coming out as queer or trans to a particular person because you don't just come out once right there's, there's kind of that uh and the illusion that coming out of the closet is the thing you do one time but it happens over and over and over again every time you meet somebody new every single time um whether it's announcing that you have a partner who is you know not the opposite gender of you or whether it's announcing your pronouns not being the pronouns that somebody might have assumed for you um that that is something that's like another coming out that you have to do every single time and there have been times where this changed the nature of relationships um, that I've had with people, including professional relationships, including relationships with people who were my direct superiors. Um, and that like, it's, it's definitely different from the kinds of discrimination that like somebody who is visibly um like not white or has some other like whatever other minority identity that is perceived from a distance whereas mine is one that is generally like i have to say something and i had the option to technically 
I guess, hide it if I really wanted to or felt like I could. Um, so yeah, it's 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 different, but it is it is still certainly uh, impactful. And I think one of the I think one of the earlier questions was about like how you know departments could or or EDI committees could start to tackle like that particular um, aspect of of discrimination or um, yeah of discrimination against like folks with LGBT identities um, and and again I think a big part of it is like asking include it in your in your intake form and your application form as an option include like more please oh my god can we please stop with the are you male or female thing like just give us a third just any third option like please um but also like not but not just like the non-binary option like if you have like binarily trans folks like give them the opportunity to make themselves known, right? Um, and to feel like being trans is not something they have to hide, right? So without, and so do it in a way that you're not telling them that you, if you have to, that you have to like pass as the other gender, right? With big, big air quotes on the word pass. Um, but yeah, in, include, include them in in the spaces that you set up for for everybody and and encourage that expression yeah yeah that was that was really insightful um thank you for being so candid about your experiences and i think a lot of people can definitely can definitely learn from everything that you said and i think that this will be really helpful for the community so yeah um thanks Elle. so yeah, so we're reaching the end of our interview, but we just always like to end with some quick hitters. So um, first one we have is want to know the three strangest things about Texas, because I know you grew up there, went to Utah, uh, and so. <laughs> three strangest things about, uh, and I see I, I read this question beforehand and I forgot to prepare something. So this is, this is coming off the cuff. One. Uh, armadillos in the swimming pool. They show up, they hang out, it's a thing. Uh, <laughs> two is the fact that Texas has like almost every biome in it somewhere. We got swamps in the east, there's desert in the west, there's mountains in the north, we got plains and hills and forests and coastline. Like, ev yeah, every biome you could try to imagine. I think we don't have rainforests, is the only thing that we don't have. We've got everything else. Um, and then finally, um, Austin, just in general, wacky place. Uh, it's, it's definitely continually changing, but it's living there was really, really fun. Um, because it was originally, it's like the capital of Texas. It's also really a college town. Uh, it also was the hippie refuge of the South in like, the 60s and 70s uh and now it has this huge like tech influx so the combination of all of those populations and forces 
uh, evolving together has been, it's a time, it's a time. I highly recommend a visit uh, if you ever get the chance. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Might have to make a trip just for the um, armadillos. <laughs> I didn't even know those were like, that was a thing in the swimming pools. Super weird. Um, yeah. The next quick hitter is, uh, what are your three favorite bands? Ooh, three favorite bands right now are, um, okay, one of them's got to be Punch Brothers. No. Yeah, okay, we'll go with Punch Brothers because I'm listening to them a lot right now. Also, Coulter Wall uh, is very, like, gritty, kind of southern blues folk vibes. Um, and then to round it off, Mother Mother, but not their latest album. Uh, they're more of like a indie, punky kind of situation. Yeah. Cool. So now um, your three favorite facts about exoplanets. <gasps> okay. Um, can it be a, can it be about planets in general? Sure. Because there's some there's some solar system planets that I do have feelings about as well. Um, okay. On hot Jupiters, uh, it snows metal, which is wild. Um, I think I heard recently that on Pluto, there are these like ammonia ices that have a very foamy consistency. It's like foamy ammonia ice exists somewhere in the solar system. That's rad. Uh, and then the last thing is uh, in, so Jupiter, just in general, what's happening? Um, it has, it's like a, it's a gas giant planet, right? But you want to know what's happening on the inside. Like, is there a solid surface somewhere? Can you, could you stand somewhere in Jupiter? But it turns out that the atmosphere of Jupiter and probably of, of all gas giant planets um, around the universe, it, there's a smooth gradient from like gas at the top of the atmosphere and then it smoothly transitions to liquid and then the liquid just gets denser and denser and denser and denser until it's we don't uh, we're not super sure probably solid in the middle um and specifically the hydrogen in in jupiter at a certain part of the density where the hydrogen becomes liquid uh it it also has metallic properties and it's like electrically conductive liquid hydrogen just zooming around jupiter wild yeah yeah wow um all super interesting but um the most interesting thing that i'm like really i really want to know is if you have any secret talents <laughs> um i was uh so i was the president of the university of texas circus in undergrad um and i have a variety of secret and not so secret like circus skills which include like juggling unicycling um that kind of that kind of thing so yeah don't tell anybody yeah um i can definitely confirm this <laughs> the, the... oh yeah i juggled in class once oh, and 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 class. at your and at your halloween at the i think it was the halloween party where you were juggling things on fire and 
everything was going crazy some fire spinning and so fire spinning that's what it was yeah. yeah that was that was really wild mm-hmm. uh yeah i definitely will not forget that probably for the rest of my life that was crazy <laughs> um, so yeah um thank you so much l really appreciated having you on um yeah thanks for supporting us and i'll see you in a couple of months at school <laughs> yeah thanks so much no it was great it was great to be here thank you for the invitation thank you